more to teaching. And so we can get stronger in teaching about the basic principles of the faith. I want to talk today about how to share the gospel, sharing the good news. The church, in other words, it ought not be that if there are 52 seats on a plane, 51 seats are filled with believers, one seat is filled with unbelievers. It ought not be that the unbeliever gets off the plane and no one said anything to him or her about Jesus Christ. But you know that's a very, can be a very high possibility. 52 seats on a plane, 51 believers, one unbeliever. And it's possible that that unbeliever could get off of that plane and having not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to be guilty of that because... Christ has saved us, then we have a responsibility and obligation to share that good news with others. But we tend not, or we will not talk about anything that we're not passionate about. And we, we don't talk about anything that we don't have a great deal of personal interest in. And so I want to challenge you today to become interested in seeing other people come to know Christ as their Savior. How many of you in here have ever heard of uh, a person by the name of Dr. Surf, Dr. Venton Surf? Anyone heard of Dr. Venton Surf? Ah, they see no hands, but oh, one person has heard of Dr. Venton Surf. Well, everybody in here has been affected by the work of Dr. Venton Surf. Dr. Venton Cerf worked for the Defense Department in 1972. He invented what we call TCP IP protocol, which allows data to be communicated across telephone lines and um, also across fiber optic lines. And it has given birth to what we know today as the Internet. If you remember a few years ago when Al Gore was running for president, one of the things that he uh, used as part of his uh, presidential speech, he said that he invented the Internet. Anybody remember that? Al Gore said he invented the Internet. Well, what actually happened was in 1986, Al Gore made an appointment with Dr. Cerf. And he asked Dr. Cerf, who was then a scientist working in the Defense Department, what new things was he working on? Dr. Cerf shared with him how he had invented this he and his collaborators had invented this process for transferring uh, information across telephone lines and fiber optic lines. And what Al Gore did was said, well, why don't you take this information, put it in the hands of businessmen and entrepreneurs, and see if they can develop some type of practical entrepreneurial use for this particular technology. And so in 1991, they passed, Congress passed a bill which was a very high-sounding name, Communication Act, which then put the, uh, all of this technology in the hands of these businessmen and women. And now, uh, some 40 years later, the world, your world, my world, every continent, every city, has been affected by what took place in that conversation between Al Gore and Dr. Vinton Cerf. Things happen when we intentionally engage 
insignificant conversations. Um, if God has saved you through Jesus Christ our Lord, if you have been born again, if you have been uh, redeemed, if you are saved, and, and um, those of us who are more than saved, we are fire baptized and uh, got a burning fire and we're running on to see what the end is going to be. If, we, we, if we've been saved, then we have a responsibility to share the gospel with other people. In other words, what would have been a tragedy and a shame is for Dr. Surf to have all that technology sitting on his desk and no one else know about it but him. And so what I want to talk to you about is how to share the gospel in a way that hopefully a person will make a decision about becoming a Christian and giving Jesus Christ their life. You do know that whether or not a person embraces Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. There are eternal consequences at stake. And that's why it's so important for us to share. So if you would turn in the fourth chapter of John, and I'm just going to go through this chapter and, um, and show you some principles here as to why we should share the gospel. The fourth chapter of the gospel of John. First, it says, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this. He left Judea. Judea was the southern part of Palestine. It would be like living here in South Florida. And he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. And Galilee would be like traveling to Tallahassee or traveling uh, to Lake City, which is in the northern part of the state. So Galilee was in the north. Judea was in the south. Jesus was going to travel back there. Now, notice that the Pharisees, they heard Jesus was gaining more disciples. So when you witness, you don't want to be like the Pharisees. You want to converse for Christ and not for crowds. In other words, we don't witness in order that we might have a big church. Big churches are not necessarily effective. It is better to have two or three people who are sold out to Christ than two or three hundred that are wondering. Somebody say amen. It's better to have two or three people who are committed to Jesus Christ. Two or three people can make a difference. And, and really, Jesus said, it's interesting, he said, where two or three, not two or three hundred, not two or three thousand, but he said where two or three are gathered in my name with a real commitment to who I am. He said, there I will be in the midst of them. And so we don't want to witness because we want our church to grow. Wrong motivation. We want to witness because we want the kingdom of God to grow. There's a difference between the local church and the kingdom of God. Somebody say amen. Ought to not necessarily be our motivation to have a big church. We ought to want to have a better church. Somebody say amen. And so, and so um, the motivation ought never to be so that we'll be big. The motivation ought to be because somebody's life is at stake. If I share the gospel, it might not change my church, but it might change your life. Secondly, 
You want to consciously choose to engage unbelievers. In other words, you're going to have to redefine sanctification. It says, now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Now, Samaria would be like if we're traveling from South Florida, we're traveling up to Tallahassee or Lake City, northern Florida. It would be like going through Orlando. Or better yet, it would be like going through Belglade, Pahokee. You all heard of Pahokee, Belglade? Right there in Belglade and Pahokee is a lake big lake called Lake Okeechobee, right? And so what the Jews would do, they would travel when traveling north and south, they would not go through Samaria because they did not like the folk that lived on the muck, Brother Wayne. They they had a prejudice against the folks there. They were related to them, but they had a prejudice and a disdain for them. So rather than going through the towns where they lived, They went around the Sea of Galilee, and they went out of their way so as not to run into people. You know how you do in church when you run, but never mind. They they went out of their way so they would not run into these people. And so Jesus had a different type of mindset. The Bible says that as Jesus was traveling, that in verse 4 it says he had to go through Samaria. And he went to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jesus had a type of mindset that I must go to the place where the unbelievers are. Christians and church people have this mindset. We must not go to the places where unbelievers are. Because if we go to the places where unbelievers are, believers might see us going into the places or coming out of the places where unbelievers are. And we hold in high esteem the opinions of other believers who are not reaching unbelievers. We don't want believers who are not reaching unbelievers to say anything about us being in contact with unbelievers. But Jesus went into the community, into the environment. He engaged himself intentionally with people who were disconnected from God. Church people are not supposed to stay all cloistered up in our comfortable spaces. I wish somebody was saved enough to go into a bar and sit at the bar and talk to somebody at the bar, not about bourbon, but to talk about Jesus. I wish the people in the church were saved enough to go out in the community where people are doing whatever people do, but to talk about Jesus Christ and to care less what the church folks who are not winning anybody to Christ have to say about it. Yeah. So Jesus went through Samaria. Why, why, 
Why was this so strange? Because Jews and Samaritans did not interact with each other. Rabbis did not talk to women in public. And what Jesus was willing to do, he was willing to violate all of the contemporary customs and expectations that people had on people of God for the sake of risking all of his reputation to win somebody to Jesus Christ. So he intentionally, somebody say intentionally, he intentionally chose and consciously chose to engage an unbeliever. Now, when he got there, it says that he got there and he's on a plot of ground that Jacob had dug a well and Jesus was tired from his journey. He was tired. So that means that, you know, he wanted to rest, right? And sometimes when you, God calls us to witness, you know what we want to do? We want to rest. Sometimes witnessing is inconvenient. Like for me, anytime I get on a plane, I'm flying somewhere, and particularly if it's a long flight, I kind of intentionally get on the plane with the mindset that I don't really want to talk to anybody. When I sit in my seat, I like to pull a hat down over my head. You know, I, if, if, you know, I, I like to be incognito. And whoever's sitting around me, I'm even cool if nobody speaks. Just let me go to sleep. Let me know when the plane lands in my city. Anybody, anybody else like that when you travel? Just, just want to just chill. But sometimes when you've decided to chill, there's somebody sitting next to you who needs to hear about Jesus. And, and have you ever been in the situation that no matter how hard you tried to go to sleep, you could tell that God wasn't going to let you go to sleep? Because the person next to you needed to hear something about Jesus Christ before you got off that plane. And so here, uh, Jesus goes through Samaria, and he comes to this place of a well. He sits down by the well. He's tired. And the Bible says it's about the sixth hour. So it's at noon. It's the hottest time of the day. Now, notice in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, if you're going to witness to people and share the gospel, you want to do it in such a way that you arouse the curiosity of the person that you are conversing with. In other words, you want to be a person that is interesting to talk to. Amen. Amen. And and so one of the things, if you're going to be a person that's interesting to talk to, you can't be a person who majors in talking about yourself. Because that sort of plays out after about two trips of the stewardess to bring you your, so, your seven up or your sprite. You, that no one wants to hear you talk about yourself that long. I wish I had somebody to help me. I'm helping somebody in here. I don't know who it is. But, but, but if you want to arouse the curiosity, you want the person to talk to The thing that people love to talk about is what they like to talk about. And so this woman had come to the well for a purpose. She came to the well in order to get water. So Jesus talked to her about water. This is what Jesus said to her, and he aroused her curiosity. He said, ma'am, give me some water to drink. 
Well, she was going to respond to that because she either had to say, well, no, I'm not going to give you any water, or how, how do you want it? Do you want it chilled, or do you want it in a paper cup? You want it in styrofoam? And so what her thing was, she asked a question. Well, wait a minute. How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water because Jews and Samaritans do not talk to each other. So immediately what he does by going against the common thought of the day, he raises her curiosity. You know what? If you go around some of these gang guys, amen, and start talking about Jesus and they ask you, well, why, where are you from? And you tell them you're from the church. Some of them be shocked. They'll say, church, how is it that you are a Christian hanging out with me? Can you, what, wouldn't it be something if, if we decided that we're not going to have a regular service on a Sunday? We're going to have early service, early service starting about midnight. And all of us are going to go out on the town. And we're going to go out to wherever the folks are at night. As a whole church, all of us are going. We're all going out wherever the folks are at night because there are some folks out at night. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. Wherever the folks are, we're going to all go. And where are we going to go? We're going to go to the ball games or we're going to go to the gates as they're coming out of the ball games. We're going to go to the clubs. We're going to stand outside of the gates at the strip joints. We ain't going in the strip joints because we don't need to go in because some of us, if we go in, we ain't going to come out. And so we just, you know, and so we, we ain't going in, but we're going we gonna to stand on the outside. And we're not going to try to harass anybody. The only thing, only reason we're going, we're going to go to the mall. You know, some of us may go early uh, doing that. We're going to go to the mall. And the reason we're going, we're going for no other reason but to hope and pray that God might give us an opportunity to say to somebody that God loves you and that Jesus Christ can save you. Don't you know that's going to have a more powerful effect on the world. You know, Jesus said you are the salt of the earth, but we've been sitting in the salt shaker so long, God got to put some rice in the salt shaker, try to get us from being unstuck. And so, he arouses her curiosity, and he asks her for water. She knows something is, is going it's strange that this guy is talking to me. And so Jesus says to her, when she asks the question, how are you a Samaritan asking me for water? He says this to her, rousing her curiosity. He asked her this. He said, well, you know what? If you knew, whoo, now, now, now that is going to arouse somebody's curiosity because everybody likes to think they know. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew, if you knew who the person was that was asking you for a drink of water, you would then turn around and ask him and he would give you some living water. So now he has her thinking. And what you want the person that you're witnessing to to do is to begin to think about where they are with God and their spiritual life. And so he arouses her curiosity. And so um, he arouses it so much that she gets to a point to where she says, well, if you have this spiritual water, give it to me so that I don't have to come to this well anymore. Now, why is she saying she doesn't want to come to the well anymore? Because coming to the well is a necessity, but it's always a source of pain. Can anybody 
relate to that, that there are necessary things that you have to do, but they're always a source of pain. And she couldn't get around and come in to get water. She had to get water every day. But coming to get water was always a reminder of her pain. And so the reason it was a reminder of her pain, we're going to see in the text. What Jesus does, the next thing that he does is the kind of, kind of uh, precarious thing in witnessing. He touches a sore spot. Yeah, he touches a sore spot. For your worksheet, he touch a touchy issue or a tender spot. Now, this is what she said. She said, give me this water. Now, notice Jesus. Notice this. Now, when you're witnessing, you're on the plane, you're witnessing, you're telling people about, you know, you, you know if you really knew um, what was available to you, what it was God had for you, you know, you would want to take advantage of it right now. And the person said, well, I want to take advantage of it right now. I said, whoa, whoa, let's hold the horses for a minute. This is what Jesus said to her. He said, go call your husband. Now, you know, that's a dangerous thing to tell a woman these days. Not just these days, but those days. Go call your husband. Now Jesus has gone from theology to sociology. Yeah, he's gone to getting into her personal business. Because, listen, when you are sharing the gospel to somebody, with somebody, the gospel addresses our personal issues. And you see, it's the personal issues that drive us away from God. What's been separating her from God? What has her so discombobulated that she's not connected with her creator? It's because she has an issue in her life that is driving her away from God. Don't y'all look at me like I'm crazy because you know very well that there can be stuff in our lives that we keep secret and that we hide and while we look like we got it together, the truth is that these silent, private, personal, not spoken about issues are separating us from God. Yeah, secrets will do that, won't they? And this what this woman was trying to do. She was trying to keep a secret. Jesus said, well, if you're going to be right with God, can't keep a secret. Go call your husband. And so what she does, as we all do, when people start messing with our stuff, people start messing with our Kool-Aid, get all up in our Kool-Aid, what we all try to do is answer the question in such a way that it satisfies what the person has started messing with. So they won't start digging in our stuff any further. Y'all act like I'm crazy, but I know I'm talking about the right thing. Am I right? And so, so, so she said, he said, Jesus said, go call your husband. So what she says, he said, well, I don't have a husband. Let's settle this matter right now. Hopefully Jesus will leave this alone. Jesus said, well, no, baby, you're right. You're honest. That's the, thank you for telling me the truth. But the real truth is you've had five husbands. Bingo. Bingo, bingo, you've had five husbands. Now, Jesus was not trying to embarrass her. He was not trying to make her feel bad. He was not trying to put her down. But Jesus knew that unless she was willing to deal with the very live issues that were in her life, that were destroying her relationship, destroying her self-esteem, destroying her blessings, that unless she was willing to deal with that, uh, she would never have a right relationship with God. 
And it's the same thing for us. Unless we are willing to deal with the very real issues in our life that separate us from God, we cannot have a healthy relationship with him. So this woman's issue was this. She had trouble in intimate relationships with men. You say, well, pastor, that's not fair. How do you know that? Well, she'd been married five times, so I figured if she was married to James, if she was married to George, if she was married to Jeffrey, if she was married to Jeremiah, and she was married to John, well, it couldn't be all their fault. I mean, you had five opportunities at this day. You got a whole basketball squad. You got to start at five. And you're still unmarried. Now, I know, sister, I know every time you get with your girls that you blame it on Jeffrey and you talk about John and you talk about George. I know what you talk about when you get with your sister, but the truth of the matter is you're involved in this too. And there's a common theme running through your mess, and it's you. You can't get saved by blaming it on George and Jeffrey and Jeremiah. The only way you can get right is to own up to the fact that I'm contributing to the drama in my life and it's driving me from God. So she said, no, you're not married. And then Jesus takes a whole nother further. He said, now, the one that you're with now, now, I know y'all are very contemporary in your understanding of Jesus and marriage and all of that. But I just want to point to this passage. Jesus said, now look, you've been married five times, now you don't give up on marriage. He said, now I'm not going to marry no more until I make sure that this is going to work. So we'll just stay together and hang out together. And we'll just sleep in separate bedrooms. <laughs> that's, what, that's what to say now. Yeah, we're staying together, but we're staying in separate bedrooms. Now, I'm just going to be honest with y'all. If I was single and I'm living in the same house with my wife, Teresa, who's single. Now, she's fine now. But back in the 1990s, woo. Oh, Lord. She was something. Now, ain't no way. I'll just be honest. Ain't no way I'm going to be hanging up in no house three and four years living together talking about we stay in in separate bedrooms. Listen, the reason we decide to move in here together is not to test the comfort of these bedrooms. Are y'all feeling me? No. We have decided to do this because we don't have the discipline or the commitment or the spiritual dedication to live our lives celibate until we get married. Now, what is married? The definition ain't changed. Married is what it used to be. 
is when you go before an official and stand before the official and you bring your paperwork and your rings and you stand there and go through the process and you will pronounce man and wife. That's married. Now stop fooling around with the definition. Come on, we married in our hearts. We are married in our hearts. Oh, you don't get married in no heart. You get married in the real deal. Am I right about that? Where the folk been married for some time? You ain't, sometimes ain't nothing in your heart no more. But you're still married. I got here, I'm here, whether it's in my heart, whether it's not in my heart, whether you look like you did in 1990 or you look like something else, it's for better, for worse, sickness, health, rich, poor. I'm stuck. I'm here. I ain't going nowhere. Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, one you got now is not your husband. Now, when we get uncomfortable like that, one thing that we want to do, we want to change the subject. And so what Jesus had to do was deal with the distraction. He had to avoid the distraction. All right? Now, especially those ego-stroking distractions. So when she said, when Jesus said all that, Mr. Benita, then the woman starts saying, say, whoo. Jesus, hallelujah. Say, I can tell you a prophet. You're the real deal. You ain't like the rest of them preachers. You got the Holy Ghost dwelling up in you. Hallelujah. Glory to God. She's ready to change something. Now she's getting spiritual. So I can tell you a prophet. Now, that's the first distraction. You got to be careful when start, people start bragging on your own spirituality. You got to deflect that because you, if you know the truth, you're not really all that spiritual. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, do I have any honest folk in here that know that at the same time you witnessing to somebody else, you got some stuff going on in your own life you need Jesus to help you with, right? I ain't all that spiritual. I ain't all that good. I'm just trying to bring the news to you. I'm trying to bring you the good news. I'm not the model you should look at. Yeah. So he deflected that. Then she said this. She said, well, you know what? I've been wondering about some things. See, the Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Samaritans say we're supposed to worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, here in Samaria. Why don't you tell me? Now, where are we supposed to worship? She, she wanted to raise an argument, a debate about what's the right place to worship. Should we go to the Church of God in Christ? Should we go to the Baptist Church? Should we go to the Pentecostal Church? Who's right, the Episcopalians or the Presbyterians? Have you ever met anybody like that? reason I don't go to church is because church folk can't even make up their mind. What church should I go to? I'm confused. But what you're not confused about is this. Go call your husband. And all of us know, no matter what types of objections we try to raise, we all know in our own spirits when we're not right with God. Am I right about that? And so Jesus said this, said, baby, listen, I don't want to get into a debate with you about which church is right. He said, the hour has come, the time is right now, when true worshipers, look at this, shall worship the Father, not in a location, not in a building, not the name that's on the organization, 
True worshipers ain't bothered by that. True worshipers are not hung up on what you call it. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit. Hallelujah. That means it doesn't matter what you call it. If Christ is there, I can hang. If God is there, I can hang. They worship him in spirit, and then they worship him in truth. Worship him according to what we know to be right. And so, finally, the woman says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I, whom you are speaking to, am he. When you witness, you've got to get around to the point of telling somebody about Jesus Christ. I mean, it's great to talk about your church, great to talk about how you got saved, great to talk about all that other stuff. But what saves a person is an encounter with the risen Savior. And so he tells her, I am the Christ. Now, what we don't see in the text is that at some point here, she accepts him as the Messiah. Then what happens, the disciples come from out of town. You see that in the text? They come from out of town. Things around verse 27, 28, 29. They come from out of town, and they notice that Jesus is talking to a woman. And they are surprised. Let me tell you, you, got to, you have to learn how to ignore believers who are not winning unbelievers when you start talking to unbelievers. Are you feeling me? And so they come, they're surprised that he would be talking with the woman. But they didn't say anything to him. They just said it to each other. I just leave that like it is. And then notice what the woman does. She goes in the town. See the last couple of verses here? She goes into the town, and the Bible says she begins to tell other people. Now, prior to that, she wasn't talking to other people. And she was hiding the personal problems of her own life. Hiding them. Why? Because she felt ashamed. She wasn't proud of the fact that she'd had five husbands. She wasn't proud of the fact that she could not get a marriage to work. She'd failed five times. She wasn't proud of the fact that she was living with somebody now that, that wasn't her husband. And so she would come to the well every day. And what you call off-water time. Women came to the well to get water early in the morning. And they came to the well to get water late in the evening. And so she came at noon. Why did she come at noon? Because she knew the other women wouldn't be there. And I've heard a whole lot of women say this. One thing I don't do is I don't hang around a whole lot of other women. <laughs> y'all, 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 I must be talking. Now, I, I never heard brothers talk. I never heard men talk like that. You know, one thing I don't do, I don't hang around a whole lot of brothers. But I've heard women on many occasions say, you know, one of the things I don't do, I don't hang around a whole bunch of other women. Because just as sure as she came out to that well in the morning 
when all those women were there with their water pots. They, she could see on their faces the scorn that they would have her. They would be having conversations. And when she walked up, the conversation would just come to a screeching halt. But now, look at her. You know what's happened to her? She has been set free. She don't care what the women think. She don't care what the men think. She's not concerned about her own reputation. She goes into the town. This is what she said. Come see a man who's told me everything about me. He put it all out there. Is not this the Christ? And at the end of the day, this is what Jesus does. He doesn't do anything else. He sets you free. Sets you free. You're delivered. You're no longer ashamed. It is what it is. I did what I did. I went through what I went through. It was what happened. But guess what? I've been set free from that. He has made me a new creature. And I can tell others what I went through without any shame, without holding my head down, without feeling embarrassed. I can get the water at water time. Not worried about who doesn't want to hang with me because I've got somebody with me who will never leave me nor will he forsake me. He won't criticize me. He won't condemn me. She goes and tells. And so what you want to always do is encourage someone who accepts Christ. They always say, the first thing you do, now go. Tell somebody what the Lord has done for you. Come on, let's stand on our feet.